Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. There were days that, that my wife and I didn't eat because we couldn't afford it. There were times we were very close to getting our utilities shut off. You know, so it, it was the struggle, but I just always knew that this not only had legs and potential, but that this would be a success. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, Episode 39. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Corey Warfield. Corey spent 20 years working on restaurants as a waiter and manager before starting Shedwool.com, an employee shift scheduling platform solving for the pain point on employee shift scheduling in a number of industries. And we're going to figure out what exactly that means very soon. Now in growth mode, Shedwool has been heavily adopted in the hospitality, retail, security, and healthcare industries. To pay it forward, Corey has co-founded MentorU Global, a pro bono consultant network, and is an emerging uh, influencer and thought leader on LinkedIn, which is where I became familiar with Corey and I have really loved consuming his content and getting to know him better. So Corey, I am delighted. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. It's truly a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, so tell me a little bit about your growth. You know, how is your company doing? When we had our initial conversation, if I recall, you were talking about how just very recently, even you've experienced some, some fantastic upward trajectory. So give us a little bit of a sense of what your company is doing on the number side and just in general impact. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're still very early stage. We bootstrapped the company thusly. And so you know, kind of, kind of from from the through the lens of a bootstrapped company that that was kind of growing very slowly. Uh, most of our revenue is monthly recurring revenue, and we were right around that thousand dollar mark. You know, we'd grown over some months to about a thousand dollars in MRR, and uh, last week we had a thousand dollar day. Um, we're, we're looking at having about a five thousand dollar month next month. We're looking at obviously gearing gearing up for you know something a little bit bigger than that. We're, we're hoping to close the year out closer to that seventy five hundred MRR mark, and so. That growth is really exciting. We've been just reinvesting revenues into the company. And so we actually just this uh, this past week, we closed our bridge round. So, so we took an investment. We actually only took half of what they were willing to put into the company. Uh, the terms that we postulated were accepted. Uh, the valuation that, that we felt comfortable with was accepted. So now we've got some money to throw into marketing. We've got some money to cover more payroll, which is fantastic. So you're getting Corey guys on the front end of an incredible journey here. In other words, when you get this, he's going to have grown that much more. But we're really looking at a process, which I think is fascinating, Corey, because you know sometimes you have conversations with people who are already well into their journey, and it's hard to sometimes unpack all of that. But you have a very interesting story. You know, you started waiting tables and providing, let's call it, you know, front-end or perhaps even back-end services in restaurants. And now you have pivoted in a very significant way, and your trajectory, God willing, is, is moving up and continuing in the right general direction. So, so first of all, tell us a little bit about what the problem of shift scheduling is. In other words, what is the issue specifically? Because most of us don't necessarily work in these industries. We don't appreciate the problem. And I'm interested in what was it specifically that prompted you to take action? 
Absolutely. So in hospitality and restaurants, scheduling is literally a problem at every establishment every day. You can't forecast how many guests are going to come in, how many plates you're going to sell. If you're understaffed, people are working much harder just to make the same amount of money that they would have. If you're overstaffed, people make substantially less money. You're effectively diluting people's revenue and income. And what makes it much worse is in the hospitality industry, about a third of all shifts are scheduled as on-call shifts. So people don't even know if they're working until the day of. So you might be on call for a holiday. And if they tell you at one o'clock in the afternoon that you have to go into work, then you don't get to spend that time with your family and you can't really plan it. If you expect to work, then they might tell you that you're not working. That can affect not only you know morale and income, but it's really hard to plan your life. And there are some states that are emerging with some fair, fair scheduling labor laws and, and litigating that right now. There have been some, some national uh, scandals where companies weren't giving their employees enough advance notice as to when they were working. And the work-life balance cannot be you know, held in that situation. So we've identified that data is a great way to let businesses know how to schedule most efficiently. Uh, we've also identified that employees are much more likely to tell their employers when they want to work, when they're able to work, uh, if they have that direct line of communication. We're talking to some big national retail outlets with hundreds of locations that are still using pencil and paper to schedule their staff. Wow! And it, it's mind-blowing that the amount of labor that they are paying for that they don't need that they could optimize for with scheduling software such as Shedwell is in the millions of dollars for some of these larger companies. And at the end of the day, it really affects morale and employee retention. And employee retention is a big expense for companies as well. So I was at a multi-million dollar prime steakhouse. I helped open them. I was with them for years. And we got bought by, by a self-made billionaire. Uh, he, he's now, I think, worth $2 billion from in the restaurant space. And he bought our restaurant. And literally the first day, he raised the price on everything on the menu by a dollar and made the portion sizes an ounce smaller on virtually everything. And it was awful. And, you know, we'd been there for six years. Our clientele really knew what to expect for a $12 order of mushrooms to then charge $13 and take a whole mushroom cap out of each dish. I mean, people notice. And uh, we kind of saw the writing on the wall. The second week, he took away our scheduling software. And we absolutely needed that. I mean, we had over 100 people on staff. Every single day, we either needed more people last minute or, or we had too many people and people would have to go home. And so he took it away. We offered to pay for it out of our pockets. We found out it was incredibly expensive. Uh, but we were still, I think, even as large as our staff was, I think it was going to be roughly $20 per person per month. We were happy to pay that. They ran it up the chain of command and it came back denied. They said they don't even want it on their balance sheet. They want to show that they took over and ran such a, a more lean operation and maximized their P&L. So, so they've, they've said no. So I took it upon myself to try to find a more, more affordable solution that we could adopt. There weren't any on the market at that time. I, I then started to try to hack together kind of some systems. I, I was using Google Sheets. And Facebook groups, I try to put that together for the staff. It was an absolute nightmare. So I basically took a few months to study how to launch a tech company, uh, how, how to assemble a team. I tried to teach myself coding, started working on wireframes and mockups. And about three months after having the idea, I quit the restaurants. This is nearly three years ago. I put my life savings into the company, uh, assembled a team, worked on an MVP. I, I had done some of the wireframing uh, myself. And we, we launched a, a product. I was very fortunate. I was accepted into an accelerator program and then a, then a virtual uh, accelerator as well as a post-accelerator by the Global Accelerator Network. And so they introduced me to a lot of people that had 
you know, raised tons of money and built billion dollar companies that, that a lot of us use every day. And, you know, my network really was able to grow and I was able to learn from a lot of these people kind of what did and didn't work from them on their journeys and being associated with some of these people whose names ring a lot of bells in the, in the tech space and the entrepreneur space really did kind of help me with some earlier exposure and PR as well. And uh, we were never able to raise capital. I wasted over a year trying. I should have just been focusing on customers and revenue. The moment I started doing that is when people started trying to throw money at the company. But you know, you live and you learn. And uh, so now we're, we're really just happy about our growth. I have 14 full-time employees uh, on the team. Uh, we just just built out our tech team as well. My, my co-founder, CTO of the company has been painstakingly writing code and testing and retesting everything for two and a half years before I was able to get him, anyone uh, to come work, work on, underneath and for us. Uh, you know, we've been trying to raise capital to build him a tech team, but now he's got a pretty robust tech team. And so we're shipping new features. We just built integrations for Alexa, Google Home, and Google Calendar, uh, which I'm really excited about. We're building a number of integrations for some payroll solutions, uh, HR back, back office solutions, and point of service terminals and software solutions. So uh, all of a sudden, we're going from being a really good standalone scheduling solution to an incredible, robust, and fully integrated scheduling solution. And that's a game changer. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I love the integration piece. You know, you said so many things, Corey, and I got to like unpack it a little bit. And uh, this is what I meant when I we had our conversation before the podcast about getting off script, because you just took me off script big time in a, in a very good way. And so I have a couple of things. First of all, a shameless plug, because you did talk about uh, being understaffed or dealing with folks who are understaffed. And so I certainly would love uh, for Lead to Succeed Nation, if you haven't already downloaded, I have an epic ebook for understaffed leaders, which I think is really valuable. And certainly head over to my website, impactfulcoaching.com forward slash epic to take a look at that for small business owners, for nonprofit leaders, for others as well. Just a way by which to unpack the issues associated with uh, being understaffed and how do you approach it as a leader to get the most out of your team. And I will also share one more personal piece before we get back to the things that you said is that as a coach and a coach who oftentimes provides work for other service providers, I know very much what it's like to have to be on a schedule and coordinate my schedule with the not only the client, but also with the companies that are overseeing the processes. And knowing that you have to deal with a knowing the, the intricacies, the behind the scene intricacies that the clients don't see relating to creating a calendar, being where you're supposed to be, uh, accounting for it, you know, financially and your billing and all other related pieces, you know, it's very important for everybody to be on the same page as early as possible. Mine is a little bit different. It's not like it's a staffing issue. So it's not like we're dealing with how many waiters do we need on a particular day or how many managers do we need on a particular day. It's a little different in that regard, but I can certainly speak to the challenges that not being efficient with your scheduling can provide. And you know, all these pieces here, you know, as, as a coach, it makes a ton of sense that morale is going to plummet, retention is going to be an issue. Certainly productivity will be a problem if your people don't feel that number one, they have clarity about their schedule. Number two, that they're given advance notice when they're needed, when they aren't needed, that they have some element or some degree of control of when they show up and when they don't. And the more that we as leaders, as owners of companies, as leaders of teams, et cetera, give our people opportunity to set their schedules in a way that supports their needs and their lifestyles, ultimately, the more we're going to create retention, engagement, 
productivity, all those things that you talked about. So I thought that was really neat and certainly very valuable. But I wanted to focus specifically, Corey, on one of the things you said towards the end, which related to your exit strategy. I don't know if you were thinking of it exactly in those terms. And you kind of answered a question I was going to ask, which related to folks have ideas. You know, all of us come up with, well, wouldn't it be great if we did this or if we had this or if we could find a solution to that? But if I had to put a number to it, I would guess well in excess of 90% of people do not take real action around that. They may feel that they don't, they don't, they're not competent, they don't have funding, they don't have the time, you know, whatever excuse we may make, and they may be very justified. But the reality is you took action. And so I was going to ask you what prompted you, what I'm hearing from what you said before, is that you were driven to a large degree by frustration, uh, driven by a sense that this wasn't going anywhere and that you needed to find a way out. You needed to find your next step. So it could be that necessity or frustration was the driving force for you. But I thought it was interesting how you, you planned it and you said, you know what? I have this idea. I'd love to be able to move it forward. And of course, correct me on anything that I say when I'm done and clarify, please, as needed. How do I develop the skills that I need in order to, to act upon my idea? Where do I get the learning? Where do I get the training? What kind of connections do I need to develop, et cetera? And then taking whatever resources you have at your disposal and committing, right? Having the confidence that you can do this. I've learned enough. I, I get a sense of what it is. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. And the runway may be a little bit longer, so I have to prepare for that. But I'm going to go all in because I believe in what I'm doing and I really see a place for this in the market. So, you know, you're welcome to touch up anything that I said, but I thought that that piece is really important because sometimes we find ourselves where we, we don't have the resources when we need to take action or we don't have the training. And then all of a sudden we're kind of stuck. But if you have that planning piece, if you have that runway, whether it's three months, six months, a year, some people may need more time, but they know all the way through, they'll keep a low profile. They'll do whatever they need to do, so to speak, behind the scenes, but they will get there because they're setting them all, themselves up for success. So when the day comes, they're ready. And you you seem yeah. to be in that position. So talk us through that a little bit more. So there, there's nothing that I would correct you on. It was spot on, but but I do want to give credence to the fact that it's not easy. And I, I didn't have the full runway. And you know, over these courses of two and a half years, I didn't pay myself. So at one point, my wife and my car was repossessed, and she's a mobile massage therapist, so she needs her car. Uh, we almost lost her house. We went once. So I've got a couple of big mastiffs that evidently think someone's trying to trying to do something they shouldn't out there, um, or there's a pretty dog walking by. You never know. <laughs> but it's it's been rough. There there were days that, that my wife and I didn't eat because we couldn't afford it. There were times we were very close to getting our utilities shut off. You know, so it it was the struggle. But I just always knew that this not only had legs and potential, but that this would be a success. And we fairly recently passed on a $10 million buyout offer of the company. So it's it's really strange. You know, I think you, you have to have kind of that, almost that dumb optimism, right? That I can do anything because I love what you said about the 90% and you're right. The reality is that over 90% of people fail their venture and their idea at the exact same point, And that's right before they ever start. Once you actually speak something into existence and have that accountability and take even that first step, it then really becomes, you know, more of a calculated journey. And you, you can have your milestones and your and your roadmap and you can stick to it. And if you don't hit a milestone, you know, at any point you have a decision to keep going or to stop. In, in my position, I'm sure my team would, would reinforce 
uh, that we're all very glad that I never did stop when, you know, a lot of milestones weren't hit. We were really anticipating raising capital. And, you know, but the fact that we didn't, didn't stop us. And now I own more of the company than I would have. I have more autonomy. I have less, less accountability to a board or to investors per se. And so I'm really glad that things worked out the way that they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and there were actually three different things I'd like to drill down on from what you just shared. One of them, and I don't want to make an assumption about what you said about your wife and the challenges that the two of you collectively faced during that, during that stretch that you were describing, but the power of having internal support cannot be understated. And frankly, you know, I'm an entrepreneur as well, and I build my coaching business every day. And there are better days and lesser days, like many other people who are providing services. You know, sometimes the schedule looks super robust and I've got clients, you know, out the door, so to speak. And there are other days where I've got to really work at, you know, continuing to fill my pipeline. And so I guess, you know, I don't know that there's a question attached to it. I'm certainly not going to ask you to share more information there specifically, but I'm just thinking aloud that I know that when I get internal support, it certainly makes my life and my mission much easier to attain. And so as you're thinking about your journey, ask yourself, this I guess is advice, but you're welcome to come to jump in on this as well. You know, ask yourself, who can I or who will I be able to lean on for support? It could be a little financial, but a lot of it is emotional. A lot of it is just encouragement of stay on the path, you're doing good work, this will all work out, that type of thing. Having that in your back pocket in my mind, is absolutely critical. And so I wanted to get your thoughts there. Yeah. So I was incredibly fortunate to have had my accelerator and then my post-accelerator. And they provided me with a lot of founder therapy. They were very familiar with, you know, a lot of the pitfalls, very cognizant of, you know, depression being a real thing. I had a therapist at one point. But so I had that real solid network. And my original co-founder built built a $20 million tech company. I uh, know rather he raised $20 million for his tech company. Their valuation, I think today stands over a hundred million. Um, so he'd also been through this and he was kind of able to help me through, you know, some, some of just the, you know, don't do this. You might experience this. If you do, you know, don't, don't lose heart. And so now I've kind of taken it personally uh, to start doing a lot of therapy myself for other founders. So I'm a founder Institute mentor. So I work with a lot of younger entrepreneurs through the founder Institute uh, mentor you is a platform that Caroline Fernandez and I have built where we offer pro bono consulting in a number of disciplines, everything from financial and SEO, growth hacking, legal, uh, personal. We have yoga instructors and health coaches and life coaches and all that. But one of the things that we're very, very hyper-focused about with mentor you is also that founder therapy, just that, that kind of support network, because truly uh, you hit it on the head. It's it's that important. You need to have people that have been there, done that, that aren't going to judge you, that aren't going to work against you in any means. People that can actually give you some ideas and you know take them or leave them, but they're based on experience. And I, so I do. I think that that support network is oh, absolutely critical. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and I appreciate you going very deep with us on that. I know it's not easy, and I can speak from personal experience as well, to necessarily be open with people and share the the rough edges of a journey. You know, we all want to be able to say that we rolled out this idea and on day one, everything was just, you know, sunshine and glory. And it kind of just moved us in this upward trajectory, you know, day after day. And we're willing to admit, you know, some ebb and flow within our process. 
but to acknowledge that things are really, really difficult and that people who want, you know, we sometimes get glamorized by what we see on TV, social media, these people who are supposedly, you know, having these just incredible success journeys and we're disillusioned at times as a result or not prepared for the inevitable that happens to most folks. So I think we could probably spend a lot of time here and unfortunately time won't permit us to do so. But that I think is why your influence on social media, LinkedIn in particular, as we've talked about, is growing because I think people connect with your message. I think people connect with your journey. And I think people ultimately want to feel that they're not bad or deficient, you know, or lacking in some way just because they're struggling. They're just dealing with the fact that, you know, there are many complications associated with growing a business and we don't always hit it right away. You know, you have a growing business now, but you talked about issues of raising equity and maybe that was the wrong focus and approach for a period of time, but you didn't know that and you couldn't have learned that necessarily without actually going through that experience. So that's part of it. So knowing from the beginning that you're going to have those rough days, having financial runway, having emotional support, preparing yourself for the inevitable negative pieces of it or the down, the parts that look bad. They may not be bad ultimately, but they look bad at the moment. That I think is really, really important. And, and I'm inspired also, if I may, by the fact that you have chosen to pay this forward, right? The idea that you had help and that you have shared help as well. And I remember once writing a piece about a coach who was very kind to me at the very beginning and thinking abundantly, supporting me in a variety of ways to understand what coaching is all about. And so if people ask me about it, or if I find a way that I can support somebody that doesn't throw off my regular routine and this and that, but still allows me to provide added value, uh, I do look for those opportunities. So kudos to you, uh, really, Corey, for, for having that mindset of, you know, I'm still not fully out of the, out of the woods, but I want to already focus on giving to others because that was so critical to me and my success. Yeah. That resonates with me. And, you know, it's, it's truly, you know, the, the, the whole solopreneur thing doesn't work. It's not investable. It's not scalable. We really do need help. It's only once I started to kind of acknowledge my deficiencies and my weaknesses and start to fill those holes and start to hire. You know, I'm, I'm not a great salesperson. As a waiter, I'm used to people being starving and choosing my restaurant and being in my section by the time I get to them. I don't need to convince them that they're hungry or that they need to come to that restaurant. So. My sales strategy uh, is much more relational. I, I, I'd rather come and, and figure out, you know, how, how I can make you laugh or smile or add value to your day. And so I brought on a director of sales who's an absolute beast. He loves to sell SaaS and B2B. It's his thing. And he started closing a lot of deal flow. And, uh, you know, I'm not a marketer. I don't have a, a experience there, but I brought in a CMO and he's amazing. And now we're about to launch a campaign that I think, you know, is going to, it's going to get us a lot of attention, a lot of good attention, a lot of uh, a lot of pipeline, a lot of website traffic. So, you know, I, I identified if I was still the only sales guy and the only marketer, we might not be closing a lot of these bigger deals. We we definitely wouldn't be having this fun campaign that we're about to launch because you know I'm I'm a creative as well, and I love making creative content for social media. But this is like this is real marketing, right? This isn't just, you know, some guy telling his story on LinkedIn. This is like, this is the way we're in 15 seconds. We can, we can get the right to targeted decision maker to understand the value proposition of saving them time and optimizing their PNL in a fun way. And so I think that just, I, you know, being honest with yourself about your own shortcomings and finding ways to compensate for those rather than trying to be that entrepreneur wearing 20 hats and doing it all and say, oh, I'll just go learn SEO and then I'll learn marketing and then I'll learn sales. I mean, 
you can probably learn some of these skills, but to try to learn them all and to learn them on the fly and to learn them at the time when you actually need them to be executed on is a really dangerous place. So I've found at least personally kind of relinquishing some of that control and just being honest about my, my weaknesses as well as my strengths and playing to both of them has been a really powerful uh, strategy even. Yeah, th- that's awesome. And uh, I, I would agree. I mean, the reality is in, in the coaching space, it's also challenging to scale, you know, finding the right way to get the proper support, fill your fill your pipeline at the same time, allow people to do maybe some of the more technical elements of what my business demands. But I will tell you this, I'm a huge user of Fiverr, Upwork, and some other, you know, um, freelance uh, platforms that give me opportunity to farm out whether it's social media related, whether it relates to, you know, marketing or branding or, you know, creating graphics and other print content, et cetera, you know, I don't have those skills. And if I worked to develop them, like you said, I may or may not get decent at them. In some cases, I I learn relatively well, but I'm not going to create that level of proficiency. It's certainly not going to be the best use of my time. And so I think we always have to think about time and again, you know, put the ego aside, like you said, what am I really good at? What are my unique special gifts, the things that I bring to the conversation that nobody else does? And where can I have the maximum impact using those strategies, using those techniques and talents? And everything else, to the degree that you can afford it, but even sometimes when you can't, everything else, you find other people who can do it so you could focus on the things that are really going to drive your success and drive your business. And I want to actually come back to one more thing before I think we're going to have to pivot shortly to our next segment. But before we do, I wanted to ask you, because you talked about being honest about shortcomings and sort of being mindful all the way through. And so here's a question I asked to a different guest on a previous podcast. When do you know, this goes back to what you were describing before, the difficulties you were encountering, those two or two and a half years of, of, of lean times, when do you know in your mind, and maybe this is not an unfair question because you've had only a single experience, but tell me if you feel comfortable answering it, when to keep going? or when you really need to kill something and redirect and start fresh? Like, do you have any insight there about, you know, because a lot of people have ideas and we want to, you know, go, go, go. But at some point, maybe it really is time to pull the plug on something. How do you fail fast if you're going to do that? And then reiterate. So I'm all about failing fast and failing forward. We've had our share of failures with with Shedwell, obviously. But I think for me, you, you just have to listen to your heart. There was no way that I was ever going to let Shedwell die. And there have been plenty of times where people said, Corey, you have $0 in the bank. You have negative dollars in the bank. You know, you're not growing revenue. And, you know, my, my accelerator raised a $12 million fund and didn't invest a penny in us. And they said, you're done. You know, you're not going to raise any money. You should just throw in the towel. I said, there's no way in the world. Post Accelerator had a substantial fund. They didn't invest in us. And they said, it might be time to throw in the towel. Well, now, now I had some litigation against one of those entities, but the other one looks like they're, I mean, they're, they're reaching out, asking if we're still raising our round. And I, I think people are very surprised. But for me, failure was not an option. Now, when I launched Shedwell, I wanted it to always be free forever. We're no longer free at all. Um, so, you know, certain things I had, a, I had a thesis because we're moving into the temp, the temp job fulfillment space. So people are saying we're going to be the Uber for work. And we have a partnership with an American family insurance company to that end. They've got a number of temporary workers here in the Chicago market that we now have access to. And I have 30,000 workers coast to coast that I have access to, to fill shifts on demand as needed. So if a restaurant needs a bartender, hit this button, they'll come in. And we have a media upload 
Uh, we have a training component so we can really have people walking to the door ready to rock. And that was why I wanted it to be free. I said, we just need as many uh, businesses using this platform as possible because we'll make our money on the temporary job fulfillment. Well, when free didn't work, I had to pivot. We started charging. Our free customers started paying happily. We started getting more companies and they started paying. And I realized people don't like or respect free, particularly in the B2B space. It seems like it's either a bait and switch or your company is going to go out of business. So we started charging. And I think certain things like that. So I did kill something. I killed free, right? Free wasn't working. I killed free. I, I killed Shedwell as a free platform, but I didn't kill Shedwell. And I think what I would tell anyone is if they have that conviction in their heart that they can make things happen, that no, no need to kill an entire venture. But as you said, to pivot sometimes is critical and really to listen to what the market is telling you. I think if someone has a great idea and can't prove out product market fit, probably not worth continuing to go down that path. Maybe it's time to, to, to re, you know, do some self-discovery and then, and then come with an entirely new idea, right? Maybe if, if the market doesn't validate what you're doing, that, then there's no reason to continue. With us, our early adopters were FedEx, BP gas station, YMCA, and a police department. It's like, if that mix of companies with the budgets that they have are willing to adopt our platform and continue to use it and give us great feedback, that to me validated that there was you know, a, a need and a positive response in the marketplace. So I think through that lens, there's like no way I was going to let this thing fall by the wayside. And I'm so glad that I didn't. Yeah. So I actually heard a bunch of things there. And again, as I said before, too much, unfortunately, in the time that we have to unpack it all. But one thing that I think resonated with me, because as I was listening, I kept saying to myself, well, that's all fine and good, but it sounded like Corey is just I don't mean this in a bad way, like a stubborn guy. You know, he just believes in his stuff. He believes in his product, but everybody's telling him time to shut down. So I wasn't hearing necessarily a an answer that I thought other people could absorb other than to kind of like just really believe in yourself and sort of stick with it. But how do you know when? But then I heard you talk about how you had some clients some groups in particular that very much believed in what you were doing. And even though you needed to maybe tweak your offering, you know, charge for it, some other, some other market related details to make it ultimately work, you knew that fundamentally there was a demand and having that demand, you experienced it firsthand as a, as a waiter and working in the industry. And then you had others telling you, yeah, we really need this. It was just a question of how and when it would all come together. That's that's kind of what I'm hearing. So my lesson, what I'm extracting from this is you need to, of course, believe in what you're doing and you need to be able to weather the storm and all the things we talked about. At the same time, you do need to be looking for evidence that there's a demand for this and there's enough of a demand with people who can pay you for what you're offering eventually, if not now, that you can legitimately make a run because otherwise you're just going to wind up getting yourself further and further along. Utilities do in fact get shut off. The car does in fact get repossessed or whatever those uh, unfortunate close call outcomes were for you for a time being. At some point, those things will happen if you don't turn things around. So knowing that you have something to rely on really does help you push through in those in those tough times. And so talking about pushing through, we're going to pivot. You mentioned Chicago before, so that's actually my first item. My next segment is the rapid fire segment. And in rapid fire, the answers are short and succinct, but at the same time, lift the curtain a little bit, let people get to know you even more on a more personal level. So tell us, Corey, the best thing about living in Chicago. And by the way, I lived there for 12 years, so I love the city. Yeah, 
I recall. So, so for myself, the best thing about living in Chicago is, uh, personally, we have two large dogs and we have a huge park a block away and we have an elevated park a few doors down. And so being able to have all the luxuries of being in a city without having to compromise and, you know, that the dogs aren't just sharing one square of cement. They're able to go run and swim. I love having the, the lake and the beaches here as well. And then as a foodie and as a socialite, I love that there's always a great restaurant I've never been to, always an amazing band that I want to see coming into town. So, you know, the, the, the social life, the nightlife is compelling. I think I'm even a huge sucker for the architecture. I love going to the South Side and seeing the buildings that were built 70, 80 years ago. You know, when people took so much sense of pride in architecture and artistry uh, yeah. and, and just neighborhoods and community. I go, I go to New York and I'm finally in my forties starting to appreciate New York. I never liked it before, but it's just so busy. And I feel like Chicago has the right buzz for me. It's you can go to busy places and enjoy that. You can also, you know, take, take a train ride a few minutes away and see nobody, you know, for minutes at a time and and not have people pushing you on the street and screaming in your ear. So I think it's got, it's got all the duality that, that I look for. It's got open space. It's got crowded space. It's got, you know, it's got culture. I also love the diversity here. I love being able to go and, you know, eat at a Nepalese restaurant one day and an Ethiopian restaurant at the other day and, you know, go to a, to a cultural center for virtually any culture in the world or our Chinatown here is very vibrant. And I just like the culture. I like the people. It's also great for business. Got it. Yeah, that was quite the answer. So we're going to have to cut back a couple of the other ones. But I, everything you said totally resonated, by the way. Parks are great. Lots of them. It is more open. It's a big city with beautiful buildings and a wonderful lakeside. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And at the same time, outside of the weather, especially this time of year when we're recording it, but but outside of that, really a great city. Okay, so uh, let's let's quickly move the other ones. If you can keep it to one word or certainly no more than one sentence. Room, desk, and car, which do you clean first? Room. Room. Okay. On a scale of one to 10, how outgoing are you? 10. Okay. I could tell that one. And finally, the book you most often gift or recommend for others to read? I have to give two because it depends on what stage. It's Go ahead. Lean, it's either The Lean Startup or it's Traction by Gabriel Weinberg. But those are the two without question. Okay. So I'm giving you the floor for a moment to just share a little bit more about how folks can get in touch with you, find you. We will put that in the show notes, but here's your opportunity to let us a little bit more connect uh, with you and your work. Perfect. So the website Shedwell.com. We're also, we're, we're very discoverable on both app stores. You just type in employee scheduling or Shedwell and we'll pop right up. Uh, on LinkedIn, I'm Corey Warfield. There are a few of us. So a trick that I use on LinkedIn is I type the name and then the company name right afterwards. So if someone were to type in Corey Warfield Shedwell into the LinkedIn browser, I'll pop right up. I try to engage with everyone that engages with me. And I certainly try to respond to every DM. So if anybody wants to get to know me a little bit more, has any questions that might have arisen from the show, uh, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. And I'm happy to take this anywhere that it goes. And definitely be in touch with Corey. He is a fantastic guy and a great resource for the entire journey as we've been talking about. One final life lesson, please, Corey, that you could share with our audience today. Never, ever, ever give up. Okay. Short, succinct, powerful. All right. It has been a pleasure, Corey, speaking with you. And thank you all, Lead to Succeed, for listening in today on this podcast episode. Uh, Really, like I said, check out Corey. He's got great content, great messaging, and certainly looking forward to your feedback. Have a wonderful day, everyone. And Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget, social media junkies, please share this recording with your networks and tag me as well. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Naftali Hoff and on Twitter at Impactful Coach. 